take your Bible, if you will, and turn to, to chapter 17 in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to actually be in chapter 18, but I want to set it up with the tail end of what happened in chapter 17. Uh, this is going to be a shorter message, obviously, because we're getting a late start, but I pray that it's just as much an impact in your heart and in your mind as if we had a full time, a full uh, measure together. In chapter 17, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in his kingdom glory. How is that? They were with him and witnessed the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus Christ was transfigured before him, or them rather. Verse 2 says, He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, so you've got Jesus who's in a glorified state. He's with two of the great men of the Old Testament. And Peter has this desire to open his mouth. <laughs> Instead of just, just behold and take in what's happening in front of him. And he said, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He's speaking of three temples, three shrines. And he was still speaking. He didn't just stop there. He kept on talking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud. This would be God the Father. And he said this, he's talking over Peter. Pretty bad when God the Father has to talk over you. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's another way of saying, Peter, shut up. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. If you heard the voice of God, you would fall on your face and be terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Here you have the Father in his transcendence, who is beyond what we understand. He is unknowable in the sense that he's other than us. He's not like us. He's the creator. He's always existed. Genesis 1, in the beginning, is not the beginning of God the Father. It's the beginning of creation. Our Father has always been. And it caused them to be terrified to be in the presence of a holy God. And yet, Jesus the Son, God the Father, transcendent, Jesus the Son, intimate. He comes near and he says, rise, have no fear. That is God. God both is greater than us and yet he chose to come to earth to understand us. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That's who we should always keep our eyes on, Jesus. One would think that after an experience like this, you would be humbled and broken at the thought that you are walking with God, hearing the voice of God, and then seeing the Son declared by God the Father as His beloved Son in whom He's well You would think that that would just cause you to be quiet and, and come into this moment of humility, brokenness at the fact that God allowed you to experience this moment. Well, human nature got the best of them. It wasn't long after that the disciples found themselves in a conversation about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Turn, if you will, to chapter 18, verse 1. 
Isn't it just like us? Doesn't that remind you of yourself? How hard it is to stay in the moment with God, to not let your stinking thinking and fleshly feelings kick into high gear and hijack the new you, the created in Christ you. And you go right back to the old self. How many of you would say, yeah, I struggle with that on a daily basis? Raise a hand. A lot of you are lying. We all struggle with the flesh, every one of us. We're not very far from the disciples here. So because the disciples are up in, the, in their heads about their greatness, our Lord Jesus Christ gives a practical teaching in chapter 18 on what it takes to be great in the kingdom and how to live the kingdom life today. This is for us. Verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And according to Luke 9.46, it actually records it a little differently. It says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. They were arguing who would be closest to Christ in heaven. So they're arguing about who it is. And Jesus responds with an object lesson. By the way, this is the fourth of five discourses in, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Five tremendous teachings that Jesus gave. This is the fourth one. And calling to him a child, verse 2, he put him in the midst of them. Now that shows us something, doesn't it? The personality and character of Jesus. He called for a little child, and the child, child didn't hesitate to come near to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but have you ever noticed the little children who the parents line up at the mall for a picture with Santa? They're petrified to sit on the lap of this big man with a big beard and black boots. It's terrifying to a child. You ever, that's the worst time to take a picture of a child. Most pictures of children sitting on Santa's lap, the kids are like this in the picture. But as we look at the life of Christ, there is never an indication that children were afraid of him. There was something pure, there was something gentle, something lovely about him that made children come to him rather than run from him. In verse 2, in calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, unless you change in your attitude about greatness and become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You're asking me who is the greatest, and I'm telling you that you won't even enter heaven unless you become like children. How are the disciples to be, like, to be childlike? Write this down if you'd like. First, they were to be childlike in sincerity. In sincerity. The word sincere in the original language literally means to the Jew back in that day, without wax. The merchants would create their vessels, clay vessels, and if they found a chip in it or a little tiny crack, they would take wax and they would fill it in and they would take it to market and sell it and people would purchase it thinking they have a perfect or a pure vessel, a sincere vessel. When they get home, they sit it down out on the garden patio, the sun hits it, it melts the wax and now they find that this is not a sincere work. This is insincere. To be childlike is to be sincere. To be sincere is to be free of deceit. 
to be free of hypocrisy. Jesus is saying for you and I today, just like his disciples, we need to have purity of heart. To be sincere is to be real and genuine. I loved the young man, the first one, who it was time for him to be baptized. He just ripped his shirt off and got in the pool. And then as, as he realized, you could just see it just hit him, what was about to happen, and he began to weep. See, that's the heart of a child. That's the sincerity that Christ says that we should walk in in this world. Second, the disciples were to be childlike in simplicity. This is actually the tagline of our church. We're committed to a simple and pure devotion to Christ. That's who we are. We don't want to try to make things lofty. We don't want to try to make things complex. We're not trying to impress people with how much we know. We want to walk in a simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. We find that from what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He said, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. How is that? Satan would try to make the gospel more than the gospel. Add to it or take from it. It wasn't enough for a believer to simply believe the message of Jesus. There had to be more to it than that. That's what Gnosticism was and is today. People who add more to the gospel than is in the Bible. He said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I read about a kindergarten class on a field trip to the post office. This is really good. As the postmaster pointed out the pictures of the 10 most wanted men in America, one of the little children said, those are criminals? And he said, yes, they are. And he said, bad guys? He said, yes. Well, why didn't you keep them when you took the picture? (laughs) Simple, man, simple-minded. That's what it's all about right there. But listen. Christ is saying, by holding an object lesson of a child in front of him, I want you, adults, believers, to approach life, to approach me with a childlike faith. David wrote it this way in Psalm 131, verse 1. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I'm not trying to be lofty. I do not occupy myself with things too great or things too marvelous for me. Here it is but I am calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. In other words, what David's saying is I'm going to allow my spirit to be captured not by the lofty and not by the great. I just want to have a simple approach to God and a simple approach to living this life for God. Sometimes we get weighed down with the, with the heaviness and we make things so complicated when Christ said tomorrow has enough worry of its own. He's calling you back to childlikeness. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Here we have the first aspect of kingdom life. Here it is. Next week in the latter half of this, this chapter, we'll cover the second aspect of kingdom life. But today we focus in on humility. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, we need to guard against the entanglement of cynicism and sophistication and remain like children if we want to be great in the kingdom. A distinguished-looking man 
walked into a store and saw a Lionel train set, and he became just taken by it. And he looked at the salesperson, he said, I'll take one. And she responded and said, oh, your grandchild will love that. And he said, you know, you're absolutely right. I'll take two. <laughs> There's something good about retaining a childlike mentality. This is at the heart of Jesus' words about humility. We live in a cynical world, don't we? It's filled way with too many criticisms and too much negativity, and everybody is suspicious of something or someone. Where did we lose that childlike mentality? I mean, we're not children anymore, so we're supposed to, as adults, take care of the bills and things like that. But a child that is weaned, it doesn't cry for milk any longer. But it also doesn't worry about who's paying the bill. Somehow we have to find that happy medium where it's not all about the adult stuff done in a sophisticated way. But in your spirit, in your heart, in your attitude, you approach everything. As a child, I did that with our, chi with our children on numerous occasions as they were growing up. The one time I've talked, I'm not going to go into the story, but we needed a new roof. We started to see a couple leaks, and I could have gone out and I could have gotten a new roof. But the Lord, I didn't feel led to do that. I gathered my family with my little children, and I said, let's pray to Jesus right now and ask him to help us, to, for him to provide a new roof for us. And the children prayed with me. And after prayer, not long after, maybe a few days, I got a phone call from a man I'd never met before. And he said, uh, Pastor Greg? I said, yes. He said, you don't know me. My na name is Ed Campany, and I own a roofing company in West Palm Beach. And someone told me that you are looking to replace your roof. And I said, yes. I said, I was going to call three different individuals and get bids. Can you give me a bid? He said, yes. I'd love to give you a bid. I said, okay, great. I said, you want to come see it? He said, no. He said, I want you to go ahead and get the other two bids and then tell me what they are and I'll come under them because the Lord told me he wants to bless you. Now, how often in life does that happen? You see, our tendency is to take matters in our own hands and make it happen. And with that comes a lot of headache at times, a lot of responsibility. Sometimes you just put it before God like a child, and the Lord shows up. And I'm telling you, it was just about three weeks later that 15 men were on my roof taking the concrete tile off and putting a roof on. And I mean, they had that thing done. They had the old roof off and the new one on all within one day. And it was a beautiful roof. And I said, what do I owe you? He said, I told you the Lord wanted to bless you. I said, okay, but I appreciate that. What's the cost? He said, well, the Lord provided another job last week for us, and we finished it early and had a lot of extra money, and we prayed and asked the Lord, what are we to do with this money? And he says, my wife said she felt that we were to give you a free roof. Folks, I didn't work this. I didn't go after it. Don't ever question what God can do when we take the words of Jesus serious. That tomorrow has enough worry of its own. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the things that you're worried about will be added unto you. In his way and his time. So there's something about a childhood mentality that we need. Don't lose it. 
Don't stop trusting and believing in Jesus. In a church service, a multi-millionaire was sharing his testimony. And he was going on and on. And he said, when I was 18 years old, I heard a missionary speak about the needs in Africa. And having recently given my heart to Jesus, I was so touched so deeply that I reached into my pocket and I took the last $5 that I had and put them in the plate. That was the turning point in my walk with God. And he has blessed me every day since. And the people in the congregation were like, ooh, ah, ee, that's so wonderful. Oh, what a wonderful story. One little older saint stood up and she said, I dare you to do it again. (laughs) Now that you're a millionaire. Sometimes we, we think we're childlike, but really we're just speaking of something out of our past. And God wants you to have a childlike story today that you can share. Be careful that we not be heard saying, you know, there was a time in my life when I had a childlike innocence. You know, when I first heard the gospel, I approached Jesus simply and openly and I surrendered my life to him. I would say to you today, I dare you to do it again, to have that childlike simple faith. This is what Jesus is saying right here in the text. We need to be in the place where we're continually excited about the word, excited about the gospel and its simplicity and in its beauty. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, humble yourself like a child. Whoever receives, verse 5, one such child in my name receives me. A number of years ago, a Scottish pastor stood before his congregation and resigned Here's what he said. In the past two years, I have only seen one conversion in this congregation. Wee little Bobby Moffat. And with such little fruit, I can no longer serve in the ministry. And he walked away from the pulpit, a broken man. Little did he know that wee little Bobby Moffat grew up to be Robert Moffat, the missionary who opened the entire continent of Africa to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're teaching children in our church right now, you're one of our staff, it's very possible that you have a wee little Bobby Moffat sitting in that room with you. Don't ever ever underestimate what God can do in the heart of one child. And we should approach that ministry with anticipation and excitement. And we as a church family should celebrate vigorously the lives of our children knowing that God is going to use them greatly for the kingdom of God going forward. All I seem to hear coming out of the mouth of adults today is, oh, I wouldn't hate to be a child growing up in this world today. Oh, it's terrible what children are going to have to face. My friends, the worse, the darker it gets, the greater the light of Christ will shine. God will raise up children with boldness in their heart to make a difference in this world that you and I never made. Let's believe in them. Let's believe that God's working in them, and let's stand with them. Amen? Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you cause one of the little ones to question me or to be thrown off course in their desire to follow me, it would be better for you to be drowned. 
Now, I got to tell you, that probably has great impact hearing this, to have a millstone tied around your neck, thrown in the depths of the sea. That, that has impact. But to a Jew, oh, the Jews were not seafaring people. Oh, they worked the fishing nets along the Sea of Galilee, which is a large lake. They never went to the sea. They felt that the sea, there was something about it that was evil. It's too mysterious. Stay away from it. To this day, Jews are not wayfaring people on the sea. So when Jesus made this analogy in their day, it really impacted them. You do not want to keep a child from coming near to Jesus. And look at what's happening to our children in this society today. How we're giving children rights without the parent permission to change their gender. And then the teachings that they're getting in our school systems that leads them away from Christ, not towards Christ. Did you know the first public school textbook in the United States of America was the Bible? Did you know that Harvard and Yale and most of the Ivy League schools started out as seminaries? The professors were preachers, ministers. I'm just trying to show you the downgrade of a nation. And Jesus makes this statement, and believe me, this statement wasn't just for that day, it's for our day. And I fear for those who are leading children away from Christ. Those who abuse children. It'd be better, Jesus said, to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the depths of the sea. That's how Jesus feels about children. They're his. He loves them. Verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one, who by, or one by whom temptation comes. The first woe is a lamentation. The second woe is a, common, is a condemnation. In other words, Jesus is saying, problems in this world are going to happen. There's going to be temptation. Just know it. It's going to happen. But if people are being derailed in their faith because of your cynicism and your unbelief, woe unto you. You're condemned. And if your hand, verse 8, or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you, excuse me, to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into the hell of, uh, hell of fire. Now, that's not a literal command of Christ that we should chop our hand off if, if we touch something sinful with our hand or that we should poke our eye out because we lusted after some woman walking down the side of the road. That's not what he's saying. It's figurative. He's saying whatever is causing temptation, rip it out of your life. If every day you drive by this one bar that just entices you and you pull in to get a few drinks and have a buzz before you ever get home to your family, Jesus is saying, go home a different route. Rip it out of your life. If you have a problem looking at uh, women lustfully. Don't look the second time. When you see it, look away. I shared Thursday night that back when I was a young man, the way the Lord taught me to fight against the temptation of lust, when I was, you can't help yourself when you see it, right? When you see somebody that's scathingly dressed. 
but I can help whether I look again. And so here's what I would do. This, and it worked. It was awesome. So I would see, and then I'd turn away, and immediately that was my trigger to begin praying for someone in my life that was lost. So every time I was tempted to lust, I would turn away and I would remember Jack, remember Steve, and begin to pray, Lord, I pray for Jack right now. Here you are telling Satan, if you tempt me with lust, I'm just going to pray for lost people. I'm telling you, it worked. Now, I'm not saying that I stopped lusting, that I didn't want to do it, my, my flesh. I'm telling you that God gave me a way out. And he'll do that for any man. He'll do that for any woman caught in any sin. God always provides a way out. Amen? Amen. In the ESV, verse 11 is missing. Some manuscripts add verse 11. The verse says, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. Uh, I, I, even though it was missing from some manuscripts, I think it fits very well. For the Son of Man came to save the lost. He's been talking about children, and now he's talking about us who are children. He treats us, he says, I want you to be like a child, right? That's what he's told his disciples. And he says, there are children in this world that are lost. They easily become disoriented quickly. And continuing on that theme, Jesus begins to talk about his concern for those who are truly lost, those who pretend to know where they're going and what they're doing, but those who humbly acknowledge that they're lost and hurting. He says, verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that, were never, that never went astray. So it is with so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's making his point. I want you to be childlike as followers, and I, my Father sees all people in the world as children, many of which have got, are lost, and they need to be found, and the Father loves them. First, God's love is absolutely unconditional. Notice that although the sheep was one, who strayed? The shepherd didn't say, well, he'll learn his lesson, that dumb sheep, he's wandered off, he deserves what he gets. Why wasn't he with the rest of the... He doesn't belittle the sheep that's lost. He simply puts the 99 on the mountainside in an area that is safe, and he takes out after the one that's lost. God's love for you is absolutely unconditional. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I don't know how the world has treated you. I don't know what your parents said about you. I don't know what you think of yourself. But I'm here to tell you from the Word of God that God unconditionally loves you. Even if you have made terrible decisions and it's led you down a bad path, you're lost if you'll simply recognize it. God will turn and he will love you and he will, he will receive you as his child because he loves you whether you receive him or not. Jesus didn't just come to die for some. He came to die for everybody. That's the heart of the Father. Second, his love is personal. He loves us each one, everyone, just the same and individually. I tend to think, Lord, you have millions and millions of sheep and I'm just one little dumb sheep who's strayed. But the reality is that's not totally true. The Lord sees everybody as lost, just like me. 
and he loves every one of us. If Jesus only came to die for one person, he still would have come. Even if it was just me that was the only sinner, God would have sent Jesus to die for me. It's personal. He loves us. He made us in in his image. He wants to reclaim us for his glory. Finally, his love towards me is emotional. I love this about the Father. When he finds the wandering, straying sheep, what does he do? Does he rebuke the sheep? Does he lecture the sheep? Does he shake the sheep, skin the sheep? You know, I mean, what does he do? The word says he rejoices over the lost sheep that's been found. He rejoices. When we wander away and the Lord comes after us and finds us, there follows an emotional outburst, not of anger, but of joy. He gathers the straying sheep in his arms and rejoices greatly because he loves so deeply. Now, keep in mind that this illustration is Jesus' answer to the question, who is the greatest? And Jesus said, check out this little child. See, that's the key. That's the key to living on this earth in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom, the Bible says, is within you. It's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. You can be like a child and know that the Father loves you. I might not be able to sing like others. I can't play a guitar. I can't fix my car like somebody else. I can't do anything. But that's not humility, folks, when people say that you're still very much uh, uh, making it about you. It's egocentrical. To be humble is not to say what I can't do, because it's still I, 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 I. To be humble is not to think about yourself at all. That's childlike. That's the call this morning from Christ. Walk with me in humility. Next week, we'll look at the second aspect of kingdom life, and that is honesty. But today, it's humility. Father, this morning, we've been so many places in this service, and what a glorious time it's been to celebrate over the lives of those who have received you. The Bible says that heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. All of heaven breaks out in joy. And here we on earth, those who believe, we rejoice as well. But Lord, may we carry that same heart of a child that we used outside when we rejoiced over the simple salvation of people. May we carry that heart with us today and tomorrow and the next day. Our children are watching us. The last thing they want to be is like a parent who props themselves up on how much they own, how much they possess how much money they have, what title they carry, who they know, how popular, how famous they might be. Our children could care less. What they're looking for in their parent is the heart of a child. Oh, I pray that you would move us as adults to have that heart, that we would model it before the children in our church, that because we are trying to have the heart of a child, our spiritual babes would become spiritual young men and women, and they would join us down the road as spiritual mothers and fathers. 
That is the sign of a healthy church. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this teaching from the Word. We thank you that you have called us to the simple and the pure, not to the uh, sophisticated and confusing. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. As always, we have our elders and prayer partners who will come and stand across the front on both sides. Doug's already here. Doug, I loved what you did. I saw what you did outside. He's, he was one of our elders. He was the hugger. All those coming out of the water, remember that? He had a rain jacket on. He's given these, he knew he was going to be given these big bear-sized hugs, so he prepared. Good job, buddy. They're here. They want to minister to you. So all you have to do is come. If you have a prayer concern, if you have a need, if you'll come to them, they will pray with you, okay? We don't have the answers. Christ is the answer. So what we'll do is agree with you for Christ to move in your life, okay? If today the Lord has spoken to your heart and you've received him by grace through faith, let us know about that at the table in the back so that we can follow up and we'll add you to the list for the baptisms for next time, okay? Uh, thank you for being here. I pray that the Lord bless you today and keep you and that you shine forth his light in this world. Amen?